Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. So we come to the end today of two weeks of coverage, first of the Democratic National Convention last week, this week the Republican National Convention. We have done our very best here at Political Rewind to try to give you a balanced look at both the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, giving both sides opportunities to uh, talk about why they think they deserve re-election. Um, and at the same time, we've tried to fact check uh, especially the most egregious misrepresentations of facts. And um, I want to thank all of you who have written to me uh, to say you appreciate the fact that we've done both, tried to be balanced and also fact-checked uh, things that were not said, were, were incorrect in the way they were said. Uh, and I have to tell you, if I ever wondered whether you in this listening audience have opinions, I should have no further concern about that. I've gotten a lot of really interesting emails from all of you, and I appreciate it very much. Uh, so thank you uh, for that. we got a lot to talk about today, so I want to get right to our panel. It's Friday. Jim Galloway is my partner, as you all know, on Mondays and Fridays. He's the lead political writer for uh, the AJC. You read him in Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper, and he oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Uh, Jim, despite the fact we all were at home for both conventions, it feels like it's been an exhausting two weeks. Yeah, yeah. Thus ended the strangest convention season that either of us have ever been through. <laughs> uh, but I will, t I will tell you, yeah. I mean, we, the Democrats had, a, had their virtual convention. I will tell you what, after, after watching Donald Donald Trump last night accept uh, the nomination from, from the Republicans— you know, it, it occurred to me, this is a guy who desperately needs an audience to do what he does. Uh, and and, and, yeah, it's, and yeah. it's very, very clear why he had this thing on the White House lawn and why he had uh, a thousand guests invited. Yeah, and, and we will uh, we were going to talk about that in the next few minutes. Uh, we're also thrilled to have uh, Patricia Murphy back uh, with us. Patricia, syndicated columnist. You read her in Roll Call. Quite often we've seen your stuff pop up in USA Today, Patricia, and we have mentioned before that you uh, worked on the Hill before t uh, turning to journalism, working in for Georgia senators, uh, Sam Nunn and Max Cleland. Um, hi, Patricia. How are you doing? Hi. I'm doing great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, we're glad you are here. Andre Gillespie, Dr. Andre Gillespie, professor of political science at Emory University and the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute on Race and Difference is back with us. Andra, welcome to the show. How Have you started classes yet? Oh, yeah, no, this is, we finished the second week of class this week. Are you, everybody okay? Everybody's as safe as you can possibly be? Everybody's doing okay. So far, so good. Good. We're very glad. Very glad to hear that. And uh, Adam, Van, Adam Van Brimmer, the editorial uh, page editor of Savannah Morning News, is back with us again today from the seacoast. Adam, how are you doing down there along the coast? We're doing very well down here, Bill. As everybody knows, we had some tropical activity in the Gulf. We haven't had any here on our shore. I hope oh. I didn't just jinx it. <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> well, be safe. 
Uh, by the way, Robert Costa was going to be with us today, but he let us know yesterday afternoon he's doing interviews for Washington Week, and one of them got shifted to earlier than he had expected it to be, and so he uh, wasn't able to join us. But we'll have Robert back. He, he has said he really enjoys doing the show, and we like having him on. All right, so let's get right to it. Uh, Jim, you you really kind of started to, to allude to this, and so I want to go to you first. Um, you know, it's interesting President Trump has been saying since February and on that one day this virus would just disappear like magic. Poof, it would be gone. And I thought he was making that up. But last night I turned on the Republican National Convention and sure enough, there were a thousand to fifteen hundred people not wearing masks close together, uh, yelling and cheering, carrying on. I, I didn't realize the virus had been defeated, Jim Galloway. Uh, the virus had, 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 has been defeated. Uh, we do have unrest uh, in, in Kenosha and, and, and points elsewhere. But the, the root cause of that unrest, the, the, shootings, uh, the shooting of Jacob Blake by, by police was, was never mentioned. Uh, and economically, we're doing fine now. Uh, uh, it's uh, the the, the uh, were 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 uh, the there was there was I I don't think there was any real citation of how many people are actually unemployed. Uh, this is it's yeah. it's an interesting. Uh, this was just the the most astounding reframing I think of of uh, of a political situation by a a body politic the Republican Party. I, I was I was I was actually impressed that they that they that they had the gumption to do that. So I and I want to get to all of it, unpack a lot of what you said, Patricia. I, my sarcasm, uh, obviously, has to do with the optics last night. Um, we all understand that modeling good behavior in the pandemic is crucial to getting people to follow suit, and and so whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, I can't help but wonder how you felt, the permission you suddenly feel you have uh, after watching last night to change how you address the pandemic, social distancing, wearing a mask, whatever. Patricia? Oh, well, I have, that has had zero effect on my approach to the pandemic, of course. Um, <laughs> it, it, listen, Donald Trump is a reality television producer, and the name of the game in that business is to create a reality that you want people to believe is real, not to show them all the ugly underbelly of what happens when the cameras are turned off, when there are no lights and makeup and uh, scripts to follow. Um, I think it was very successful on that level. I think that um, more than the pandemic um, piece of it that I that really struck me was the incredible gap between the story Republicans told during the convention and the president they presented, um, almost out Joe Bidening Joe Biden on empathy and a champion of minorities and women. Um, that is not the president that we've seen through his own words and actions and Twitter feed. Um, but it is the president that some really excellent character witnesses came forward and talked about. And so I think in that way, um, it was incredibly effective for the job that Republicans wanted to do. And um, to have a TV producer produce a show like that was uh, pretty much a home run, if you ask me. 
it, it, and we can talk, uh, Andre. Before I want to get to you and Adam next, but but uh, let's open the door. I mean, the optics are the least of what we have to dis- talk about. There are so many issues, as Jim said, the pandemic, another police shooting of a black man now in Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, all of the other uh, uh, some violence in the streets. But let me, Andre, let me set up your take on the overall uh, convention with a couple of uh, uh, sentences from two diametrically different views of the convention. From the New York Times, Charlie Wurzel said this, for three nights in a shameless display of loyalty to President Trump, the party had conjured up what my colleague Frank Bruni described as an upside-down version of the world. Theirs is a universe in which the coronavirus pandemic is largely in the rear view, and where, according to Representative Matt Gates, radical Democrats threaten to, quote, disarm you, empty the prisons, lock up you, lock you up in your home, and invite MS-13 to live next door, a universe where the existential dangers of climate change pale in comparison to those of cancel culture, even as the West is ravaged by blackouts and wildfires, the Gulf Coast is slammed by a devastating hurricane. Okay, now, in National Review, Jim Garrity said this this morning, And for three and a half nights, as of this writing, the Republican Party has gone out and done a really solid job at making the strongest argument for the president's reelection. Look at the policies this administration has enacted and remember the times they worked well for you. Forget the president's Twitter feed. Forget his angry tirades. Forget the nutty things he can say when he's free associating in front of television cameras. Recall three years of solid economic growth, including rising wages in till the shutdown forced by the pandemic. Think of the First Step Act, and he lists a few more. All right, diametrically different views. Andre Gillespie, let's talk about how you saw this week. Um, so I think in terms of trying to make the best case for themselves, I think that, that, that Trump and his team certainly did that. I think the issue is whether or not that actually jives with reality um, and people's perceptions of what was going on. So when I was on Twitter last night and I was looking at you know, what was happening, what I what I started to think about was, okay, how are people going to interpret this? So if you're already inclined to support Trump, what you got was virtue signaling that's going to help you rationalize that decision if there was any doubt in your mind. So if you think, you know, he's too coarse on Twitter, everybody's like, but look at what he does, not what he says, is that what he says isn't connected to what he does. Um, if you might be concerned that he might be racist or sexist, you've had all of these people, you know, who talked about it. If you're concerned about his lack of empathy, they found people who somehow found a way to get a personal connection or hookup to get some type of transaction from Trump. And so it made him look more empathetic. But then you got to figure out everything else that's going around that. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I put on Twitter was that – that, that Trump is might be really good for achieving people's short-term interests, but is it a sugar rush? And then what do you deal with after that? And then also, if you do happen to like the policies, if you do happen to agree with them, I think you also have to ask at what cost do these benefits come? So if it's coming at the expense of destabilizing institutions, um, if it is coming at the expense of ethics and integrity, is it actually worth it? to sort of get these policies? Like, is he really the only person who could have done this? Like, is there another way that this could have happened? And I think voters are going to have to ask that question for themselves in order to make their decision about who they want to vote for. Adam? Yeah, Bill, Bill, this was the fear and loathing convention. It really, really struck me 
right between the eyes that if your convention is is geared toward firing up your base and attracting the undecideds, obviously Trump has no has no problems in terms of firing up the base. Uh, in terms of trying to attract undecideds, he basically said, "Here's everything you should be afraid of." I mean, I, as as somebody who is is pretty moderate and, and undecided myself, I mean, I listen to that speech and I want to go to the pantry, grab all the canned goods I have, and you know, I live on the coast, but I don't have a basement. But I want to go hide somewhere, just because I, I, you know, the way the picture he painted yesterday was nothing short of the apocalypse. Well, let's just listen to uh, one of the things that uh, Donald Trump said last night, and then uh, Jim Galloway pick up from there. In the strongest possible terms, the Republican Party condemns the rioting, looting, arson, and violence we have seen in Democrat-run cities all, like Kenosha. Minneapolis, Portland, Chicago, and New York, and many others. And on November 3rd, we will make America safer. We will make America stronger. We will make America prouder. And we will make America greater than ever before. Jim, no wonder Adam wants to hide somewhere. <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's uh, uh, there there was that, and the other other part of that was was how they care how they how they went after Joe Biden, and 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 I, I've alluded to this in, in in previous shows, but I but I think they they uh, but but Trump was uh, uh, Trump really 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 doubled down on it uh, last night. Uh, you know the Democrats portrayed Joe Biden as as nice. As a reasonable fellow, a fellow full of empathy who can feel for it, uh, in last night that was that was uh, that transformed into weakness. Joe Biden was weak, uh, and I think we're going to hear a whole lot more of that. That's how they respond. That's how they're they're going to respond to it. Uh, Andre, you got you wanted to jump in here too, didn't you? Oh well, I, I, please. I, I didn't want to uh, uh, not let you finish your point, but you know, one of the things that I think really kind of struck me, especially by the clip that you just showed, was there was also sort of a lack of personal responsibility and sort of taking responsibility for the administration. So Trump is kind of running like he ran in 2016 as the outsider who's seeking to drain the swamp, and it's like, well, the swamp is yours now. The buck should be stopping with you, and he wasn't taking responsibility for anything. So when he goes after Democratic cities for causing unrest, it's like these cities have been led by Democrats for years, so you can't make a causal argument that it's because Democrats took over that these cities are now erupting in violence. Um, and similarly, some of this is actually also misleading. So when Vice President Trump, um, when Vice President Pence, excuse me, mentioned um, the federal officer, David Underwood, I believe, who was killed um, in Oakland, it's like, well, the suspects who've been arrested for that were not Antifa. They weren't certainly weren't Black Lives Matter. They were Boogaloo boys. So, like, like we have to sort of, like, you can't, like, not talk about Kenosha and not talk about the police violence and not talk about uh, Jacob Blake and also not mention the 17-year-old who's running around with an assault weapon killing people. Like, like, like all of this, like, who had, you know, you know, wasn't sort of, you know, who was there to be a vigilante. So, like, it just seems like there was sort of this distorted reality where people weren't taking responsibility for things or tone that they've set that actually has created this unrest. Adam, the the question for me is: Do these scare tactics work? And I'd be hurt, I'd be curious to hear Andra and, and Patricia's take on this because, like it or not, this whole idea of the silent majority—they are out there. 
They are out there, and they are being played to by President Trump and by the Republicans. So is this kind of scare tactics and what the Republicans are pitching, is it getting through, and will it make a difference in November? So I would say the single most powerful issue that Republicans and President Trump have right now is this framing of the choice as a defund the police versus defend the police and making it an either or choice. And when you get into places like Kenosha um, in Wisconsin, uh, when you get into um, even Atlanta, when some when the uh, protests uh, start to move from downtown out toward the suburbs, um, I think that it is probably the single biggest issue to keep an eye on because uh, even Joe Biden does not support defund the police, uh, but some Democrats do. And the attempt by Republicans right now is to say um, Joe Biden is too weak to stop the cabal that's coming in with him if you elect this man. And in uh, President Trump's own words, uh, he said, nobody will be safe if Joe Biden is elected president. And I think that is the existential threat that Republicans are presenting um, to counter when Democrats said democracy is on the line, Republicans are saying you're on the line. So I think it's a I think that's yeah, but, the space to watch. But but I think you all have kind of alluded to what is sort of not particularly a secret uh, about this week's Republican convention, Jim. Uh, and, and you know what? Let's do this. Let's let Joe Biden set this up for us, uh, Sam. Let's go to the uh, Joe Biden. Uh, soundbite because he makes the point that we should then uh, discuss. Go ahead and play it, Sam. The problem we have right now is we're in Donald Trump's America. You know, to uh, to quote uh, um, Kelly Conway, she said, and I'm paraphrasing today, that they're looking for more violence and more disruption because it helps them politically. He views this as a political benefit to him. You know, he's rooting uh, for more violence, not less. And it's clear about that. And what's he doing? He's kept pouring gasoline on the fire. This happens to be Donald Trump's America. Donald Trump's America. So, so Jim, that's the bizarre thing about this. And the question is, will voters out there buy into it? This Donald Trump is president of the United States. The violence, what violence there is that's occurring in American cities, is occurring under his administration. The question becomes, what exactly is he doing differently after November 3rd? It, it makes absolutely no sense. But, but uh, if, if, if you kind of extrapolate on what Biden was saying, I, I, think, I think Democrats do have an assignment coming out of this RNC uh, uh, gathering. And that is they're going to have to be a lot more disciplined in their behavior out on the streets and in their language and in, in, in what language they choose over the next over the next three months, uh, uh, because because it's going it's going to be used uh, against them every single time. Uh, one thing I, I, I just want to and, and I, I don't want to interrupt the flow of the conversation, but I think we need to talk a little bit about what we didn't see at this convention. If I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, only one governor appeared, governor of South uh, of, of South Dakota. Uh, I, I could be wrong, but Christy I Christy Newsom appeared uh, because uh, uh, which means which means Democrats, Democrats and Republicans had an equal number of Republican governors at their conventions because the Democrats had John Kasich. Okay. Uh, but you didn't see. And think about this. The, the only Georgian to appear in prime time 
at the Republican National Convention, uh, and Georgia has been the reddest of states, was Vernon Jones, the Democrat House representative. Uh, Brian Kemp wasn't there. David Perdue wasn't there. Kelly Loeffler wasn't there. Doug Collins wasn't there. They all had uh, the 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 the, uh, the Congress people. They had they had kind of small vignettes, video vignettes, but they didn't have they didn't have prime time appearances. And I thought that was that was really interesting. That uh, this was this again. Right, this was about Trump, not about the party. All right, once again, Galloway gives us a lot to unpack. Andra, uh, pick up, though, on this theme that about uh, uh, Trump running as a challenger, not as an incumbent. Um, well, I mean, I think he's still trying to run as the outsider, and he is trying to tap into grievance. And so the theme of the forgotten Americans, I think, is the sort of new repackaging of the silent majority. Um, but it's also tapping in – he's trying to tap into white racial resentment, and he's still – trying to tap into numbers that would assume that most whites, though a shrinking part of our, our population, still make up the majority and that they might actually waver if they feel that they have an existential threat against them. Let's forget the fact that black people feel terrorized, like, you know, by the police and walk outside and fear for their lives, which is why you see everybody from regular folks to NBA players kind of like walking out on stuff, right? Um, you know, I think about uh, my friend from high school who lives up in Cobb County, and I remember one day we were on a flight. I can't remember why. We were either going or coming back from our hometown. Um, and she was like, oh, my gosh, it's open season on black men. And she was thinking about her two, her two boys um, in that situation. And so that's the lived experience of people of color. But since we are numerical minorities, right, you don't address that situation. Um, but so what he's trying to tap into is an anger that can be used for mobilizing effects. There's a new book out in political science that sort of talks about what anger does kind of in different racial contexts. And so for whites, anger can get you to mobilize to vote. For blacks, it can make you go protest. Um, and so, like, that's exactly what he's trying to tap into to try to give people this sort of distorted sense of reality that, like, you know, if the riots are coming, they're going to come to your doorstep. Um, and they do come to some people's doorsteps, but they're not coming to everybody's doorstep. Um, and then also we have to think about what are the underlying reasons for uh, the violence. And so does it make sense to try to stamp down the protests um, or to not acknowledge sort of who are opportunists versus who has a legitimate point in a debate versus actually getting at the root of the problem, which is people want an answer and a response to what they perceive as disproportionate and deadly policing in communities of color. So, Bill, Patricia, uh, from, I, I oh, go, th- go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say. Your turn. <laughs> for much of 2019, Donald Trump was really wrestling about the slogan for his campaign, and it was between make America great or keep America great. And he would poll his audiences and give me a show of hands, give me some claps, make America great or keep America great. And he went with make America great again, again, um, because keep America great puts a lot of ownership for the current state of this country on this president and this administration. And objectively, America is not so great right now. We've got 10 percent unemployment. Millions of children are in their homes today on a school day instead of being at school. Um, a portion of that has to come back to leadership um, above and beyond what the pandemic has done to us. And it, what was so brilliant, I thought, with the choices in prime time for Republicans, without the elected officials, without the parade of white men in suits who were actually all in the audience, um, 
it felt like the Republicans weren't really in charge. And the Democrats were parading this senator, this House member, this person who, you know, who, uh, this mayor, this governor. It, you left those conventions and you thought, wow, look at all those Democrats in charge. You didn't feel like the Republicans owned these problems. And that was a very, very, to me, successful and clever presentation. Yeah, maybe so, Patricia. I think that gets back to what what Jim was talking about was why did we not have people who are running? uh, Exactly. Officials that are running this fall. I mean, we have two Senate seats here in Georgia. Those very well could decide the balance of power in the Senate. And so are they doing that just so that they if if everybody is looking at Trump and looking at him negatively, that they don't get, you know, painted with that same brush? Or what exactly is going on there? I, they probably missed an opportunity, uh, especially with, again, with the undecided voters who maybe aren't looking at it as as deeply as, as what you're alluding to. Yeah, Jim, uh, I, let's pick up on that. I think Patricia makes a really fascinating point. Was this an intentional device to sort of say, well, we're not in charge. We don't have all these office holders. Mitch McConnell made a brief appearance last night, and uh, he didn't really talk about President Trump's uh, great achievements, He, but he did certainly talk about why Republicans need to hold control of the United States Senate. Um, but why not? Why was it? David Perdue. I, okay, so you you could say Kelly Leffler, Doug Collins are splitting up Republican voters, so maybe the planners of the convention didn't want to have to either choose one of them or didn't want to give both of them a slot. But David Perdue has been one of the president's most aggressive defenders for four years now, and he was relegated to a pre-convention brief video uh, that got no attention whatsoever. What is that about? Well, well, first of all, let me say I always appreciate somebody taking one of my thoughts and expressing it much better. So thank you, Patricia. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but, never. but <laughs> never, it can't happen. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, uh, this is this is this is really interesting because you, you brought something up that's 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 very key. Okay, uh, the Leffler contest, the contest with Kelly Leffler to preserve her seat, is 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 a it's a twenty candidate affair. It is essentially. A, a Republican primary on one side, a Democratic primary on one side, with with Kelly and and, and uh, with 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 Leffler and Collins on on the Republican side, with uh, Raphael Warnock, Ed Tarver, and and Matt Lieberman on on the other side, and so so there's no there's no benefit in in. In, uh, if, if if Trump were going to choose Leffler, he'd have to choose Collins, uh, and and that even applies to to Brian Kemp. Had he put Brian Kemp on the stage, that would have been a nod toward Kelly Leffler. So so that that would have been something. But but Purdue, David Purdue, is an interesting situation. He is in the same situation that Democrats in the 1970s and the 1980s were. That that they don't want to be too closely tied to to an incumbent republic uh, an, an incumbent fellow fellow party member in the White House. I mean, you and I are old enough to know that that you know that that back in the day, Herman Talmadge, uh, uh, Richard Russell, they would suddenly disappear during de- uh, Democratic mm-hmm. national conventions, and and they would oh they they they, yeah. they would go for they would have a uh, 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 codels they would they would go visit the troops overseas or the, or they would go fishing. Yeah, and I think yeah. the other thing. Uh, interesting... I think that's a good point. 
Sorry. You know, I think the other thing that I just kind of wanted to piggyback on there is sort of how the parties perceive Georgia as being in play. And so there was a lot of attention, lots of speakers from the upper Midwest. It's very clear that that's where Trump is going to focus. Um, and I think by not putting Georgians in prime time, it was just a signal that they don't view Georgia as actually being the most competitive. I think that's a really interesting observation, despite the fact that they're deciding they've decided to dump a bunch of money into TV ads here and social media. But all right, let's do this. Let's take a break right now. And when we come back, I'd like to continue a conversation about what we saw in terms of the contrast that voters are going to be able to look at as they move toward November 3rd, how the Democrats are Uh, talking how Republicans did in their convention. And we'll do that after these messages. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Patricia Murphy, Jim Galloway, Andre Gillespie, and Adam Van Brimmer with us on Political Rewind today. Uh, Let me play... Uh, two sound bites, and then use those to pick up on our conversation, if I may. Um, first, let's listen to another one of the uh, uh, remarks that President Trump made last night as he uh, tore into Democrats. At the Democrat National Convention, Joe Biden and his party repeatedly assailed America as a land of racial, economic, and social injustice. So tonight, I ask you a simple question. How can the Democrat Party ask to lead our country when it spends so much time tearing down our country? All right, President Trump. Now, Kamala Harris, who uh, gave a uh, speech yesterday before uh, the final night of the Republican convention. People are rightfully angry and exhausted. And after the murders of Brianna and George, and Ahmad and so many others. It's no wonder people are taken to the streets. And I support them. We must always defend peaceful protest and peaceful protesters. Here's my promise to those mothers and fathers and all who stand with them. In a Biden-Harris administration, you will have a seat at the table in the halls of Congress, and in the White House. So, Patricia, obviously this week, Republicans tried to make the point that the Democratic convention was all doom and gloom. The Democrats were promoting a very negative view of what America is all about. But contrasting those two comments, um, what's your takeaway? So, uh, these are undeniably very dark times. And the question is, what are people going to do to make that better or keep it from getting worse? And I think Donald Trump is saying, hey, listen, 
this is bad, it's going to get worse. It's bad because of some of the Democrats in charge. It will be worse with only Democrats in charge. Um, and Democrats are going to have to really push back hard on this law and order piece. They are going to have to really work to um, be specific and forceful about the right to peaceful protest and the need for peaceful protest. Um, but those ha we've seen those even on live TV in our own cities, those turn very, very quickly. Um, and I really think that Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, has done some of the best messaging on this um, and, and was very forceful that single night when Atlanta started to burn. Um, and she told people to go home and um, that it wasn't in the spirit or uh, with the effect of the civil rights movement. And it's, it's a really tough tough time. It's a tough time to be a leader, and Democrats have to convince people that they would do a better job. Um, and they, it, it's, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be tough. I really don't even know what advice I would offer them. Um, and they're going to have to, to stay on it. The Republicans have had the final word so far, and Joe Biden's going to have to get out of his basement and start doing a lot more talking. Adam, it, now here's an interesting thing, Patricia. We have all picked up on that language, Joe Biden's in his basement, uh, which is what the Republican, that's a Republican description of yeah. where he's been. And yet, and yet the power of their repetition of that, uh, we're all using that right now. Um, he's not but down he really in his basement. In he's his all basement over the <laughs> For a while. And it's not just yeah. no, I understand. But <laughs> no, no, I, I, I understand. Yeah. I understand. Um, so Adam, uh, Talk to us about voters down your way. How there are, I came away from this Republican convention thinking that this law and order message that the Republicans are now pushing as the biggest uh, point of their entire campaign has the ability to res resonate, uh, especially uh, if we do continue to see some violence in American cities. Yes, I, the, I don't know if it's fortunate or not, but one thing about here on the coast is that we're not seeing that kind of violence. We're not seeing those protests, as Representative Carter laid out the other day in his appearance, that, that we did have a protest here in Savannah, but it was it was led by the local leadership and was very well organized and was very peaceful. And while there were some sporadic groups that did some marching and and it had the potential to get out of control, it did not. The police did a very good job. And, you know, the whole idea that uh, I've heard a lot of talk about the Ahmad Arbery case and, and the difference between the Ahmad Arbery case and these other cases is, is that it wasn't a policeman that gunned down Ahmad Arbery. It was it was somebody in the neighborhood. It was vigilante justice. So I think that the, the tenor of the protests, whether they're here in Savannah or down in Brunswick, have been a little bit different. But in terms of police and, and that kind of thing here on the coast is we went through a, a rough time about five years ago in terms of the police, and there was a big push in order to get a bigger police presence, to get the police to be more involved and, and, and take a more active role to try to curb some crime here. And the whole idea of, of defund the police here doesn't quite resonate uh, the way it does elsewhere. Uh, yeah, yeah, Bill, I, th I think to, to, to Patricia's point, how do you combat uh, 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 this law and order message that Republicans are going to be driving very, very hard uh, through November? And I think what you do is, is you, you, you've got to, you've got to, to, to uh, meet it with a law and justice 
message. Uh, one of the more one of the more interesting uh, 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 bits of dialogue that I was seeing on on Twitter uh, yesterday was the mere fact that a white 17-year-old with an assault weapon who had just shot three people was able to walk through police lines in Kenosha untouched, while a, a, while a, 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 a young black man who might or might not have had a weapon was shot seven times. And that's, that's the kind of, that, that's, this is the kind of messaging that's going to have to go on, in particular in American suburbs, because they have to be brought in on that discussion, because that's where this battle is going to be fought. And I think related to that, it's like, look, we also have to ask who's being lawless in this situation. Like, law and order resonates because of these longstanding stereotypes about black criminality. But when you see vigilantes who are taking the law into their own hands and kids who somehow got the idea that they were Rambo, um, sort of through some really misguided sort of sense um, of, of sort of like what it means to be a man in American society. Um, like we've got to confront that. So like if you, you're going to sit there and, and, you know, forever sort of bring up tropes about black on black crime and black criminality, right? You also have to, uh, you know, like, like we have to sort of have a much more honest conversation about what white vigilante justice looks like in particular and acknowledge the lawlessness of that and understand that that's actually been a, an important strain in American history as well. Like that's what the Klan was. So, um, like we have to, like we, we have to be really honest about that and, and, and put that point home and stop blaming Black Lives Matter for stuff that they didn't do. Yeah, and I think um, what we will also continue to hear from Joe Biden in particular is um, his message about the light versus the darkness. We will find the light again. Um, and when you look back in American history, hopeful campaigns, when they're executed properly, are very successful and they are enduring. And FDR was very hopeful, and Ronald Reagan was very hopeful, and Barack Obama was very hopeful. And even Donald Trump in his 2016 campaign, if you went to those rallies, really promised a hopeful future for the people who supported him. And it can be very, very effective, and I think that's where Joe Biden is going to lean in. Um, but to um, Andre's point, they really are going to need to make some distinctions between the broad brush strokes that are being are being painted right now. All right. I, you know what? I want to continue on this theme of law and order and how it will play for both Democrats and Republicans. I want to talk about Jacob Blake and Kenosha. But why don't we do this? Um, let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back. And when we start, Jim Galloway, Let's use the column that you've just posted uh, on AJC.com as a, a, a departure point for that part of our conversation. Here we go to uh, our break, and we'll be right back. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Just a quick program note uh, before we go on with our conversation. Um, we're going to turn away from uh, election politics uh, early next week uh, because we've all had a lot of that for the past two weeks. On Monday, 
we're going to do a show that Jim Galloway will uh, fortunately be a part of with us, uh, talking about this notion of uh, police reform as opposed to defunding the police, uh, racial justice in terms of uh, police shootings of mostly black men. And we're going to take that up on Monday with a really wonderful panel. And then on Tuesday, we're going to go back and look again. And we haven't talked about the coronavirus in Georgia or what's happening with it nationally. Uh, and so on Tuesday, we're going to uh, pick up that theme one more time because a lot has happened in that area during the two weeks we've covered the conventions. All right. Jim Galloway, um, I thought for me, and, and I suspect for many people, one of the most telling moments of the Republican convention in terms of what the Republicans want to leave Americans with this week was the appearance of Patricia and Mark McCloskey, the St. Louis couple who brandished weapons, uh, pointing them out of fear at what was, by every account, a peaceful Black Lives Matter protest that came through their neighborhood. And Patricia McCloskey said, repeating a theme Republicans have already been using, if Joe Biden is elected, they're going to destroy your our suburbs. They're going to bring mixed income housing to the suburbs and destroy our way of life. That wasn't, as I said on the show the other day, Jim, that wasn't a dog whistle. That was an air raid siren. And you yeah, talk yeah, the, about that in your column today, right? Right. Uh, yeah. It, it, it was a, a, uh, a the threat to single uh, single family housing uh, is kind of an odd odd uh, odd uh, odd battleground. But uh, it, it was a, you had this tremendous theme throughout the four days of the Republican convention, directed with a message directed at at suburbia, suburban suburban America, that they are they are facing destruction. Uh, uh, Patricia McCloskey said it, her husband said it. Uh, uh, Matt Gates, the Republican congressman from Florida, uh, said that Democrats would put MS13 next door to you. Uh, uh, Donald Trump last night made a reference to it that uh, that 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 uh, that uh, Biden's election would result in the destruction of suburbia, and and the point I was making in in the Sunday column, which like I said is already up, is is that you know it's especially in the South the the the, the, the racial dynamics of 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 Georgia used to play out uh, suburban versus urban, uh, largely, and and that is changing. And since since uh, since oh since you know the 1990s, you've had this tremendous movement of African Americans into into Atlanta suburbs. Uh, I mean, 87 percent as of this is was of, as of 2010, 87 percent of of African Americans who live in Metro Atlanta live in the burbs. Uh, the problem is that that the burbs are just as segregated in many cases as as. Uh, the other geography that we used to be talking about, and you have portions of portions of suburbia that are in, that are that are in transition. Uh, Cobb and, and Gwinnett are, are are two good examples. North Fulton is another uh, is another example, where where you have a it is it's essential that Republicans hang on to this territory if they want to maintain control of the state capital, and. 
And that's why you see, I, th I think, why you're seeing this extremist language built around uh, around the threat to, to, uh, to, to, I guess, to property values again. Okay, yeah, but, but let me make sure, Andra. Uh, it, it may be true that our suburbs are, are much more broadly integrated than they ever have been before. Nevertheless, as you also point out in your column, President Trump sees the ghost of June Cleaver stalking the land. He talks about suburban housewives. His view of America is not of, a of an integrated suburban uh, community. He believe, I think Trump clearly believes that communities are white. And so it's not odd that he talks about single family dwellings as opposed to mixed uh, housing. Because, Andra, he's talking about the fear of black, fam of black people moving into the suburbs. Yeah, and he's trying to make a pitch to college-educated white women. So that's the segment of whites that he lost in 2016. And based on sort of what we've seen in 2018, I think there, you know, there's a legitimate fear that, that that's further eroding in terms of sort of support for Republican candidates there. And so one, it's a misnomer. I think it's also a misnomer to sort of assume that you can win back these women by making racist and racial appeals. Um, and then using people like Patricia McCloskey, uh, you know, I, I was just looking sort of, I don't know St. Louis all that well. Um, they actually live in the city of St. Louis. They don't live in the suburbs. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. So, um, right. I mean, they live in a very fancy Tony neighborhood that might have a suburban feel to it, you know, like Buckhead or Tuxedo Park or Druid Hills. But, like, it's still within the city proper. So, like, they are making claims. And so what they're saying is, is really coded language. And so for middle class, affluent whites, what they're saying is he wants to bring in all these people who are going to change your way of life, life, reduce your property values. And we can talk about how we're not interrogating the ways that those communities were set up in ways to exclude and to exacerbate divisions and promote inequalities, particularly um, wealth inequality um, and racial inequalities because of restrictive covenants. But then there's just also sort of this issue of sometimes the people who we put forward are really problematic in that, like, they don't live in the suburbs. Um, you know, not that, you know, they would have a right to sort of pursue their property, but it looks like what they did was a bit of an overreach. Like, I've seen the damage to their house, but also all the videos that we've seen are people walking by their house and not actually doing anything to them. So it's like, why are y'all standing outside um, with guns? But it's tapping into a certain fear and using coded language to try to get there, hoping that, like, that's actually going to move some voters. Yeah, Andra is correct. I think that they're hoping that people aren't going to do aren't going to do the legwork, aren't going to do the research to actually investigate what is going on here. And that is, I think, uh, kind of a not kind of it is a trend, a tendency of this administration is to really just kind of scratch at the surface and hope nobody looks underneath. And and I, you know, I think that's not to open another can of worms, but I think that's why they have made such a, a concerted effort to vilify and undermine the credibility of the media is because they don't want people to actually know, have the knowledge, have the have a true understanding of the situation. So I um, I agree very much that the reality of the suburbs uh, does not comport with Donald Trump's uh, memory of the suburbs, maybe when he left Trump Tower in the late 1970s and uh, ever since has really not updated his opinion. He probably hasn't been to a suburb since then. Um, but when I was covering the John Ossoff race, the first special election in 2018, everybody who volunteered on that campaign, and there were not enough 
spots in the parking lot to accommodate the volume of people coming to help this unknown Democrat try and flip a Republican seat. Everyone was a white suburban woman who was not a suburban housewife. These were doctors. These were uh, professionals at the CDC, women who worked at the Carter Center, women who had PhDs. Um, they were all professionals, and they were all totally turned off and offended by Donald Trump. And um, that race obviously flipped, and then it flipped to an African-American woman in Lucy McBath. So what, the Repu- what Donald Trump thinks the suburbs are and what the suburbs really are, and these are the swing districts, not the exurbs that are totally Republican, the swing districts that they need Will this play work in a very fast-changing suburban environment that is not only more um, more diverse in the way it used to look, but women aren't who they used to be. These, these they're voting for different reasons, and the appeals um, may or may not need to be updated. This this election will tell us a lot about that vote. So, all right, Jim, we're, we're a little short on time, but, but while we have a few minutes, and we'll talk about this theme again uh, in the weeks ahead. Um, so I think everyone was in agreement, Republicans as well, uh, many Republicans, praising Joe Biden for giving a very strong uh, performance at his convention. Last week, he gave a very forceful artic- a speech in which he articulated uh, uh, the beliefs that he's going to carry through the election. That was fine. I don't know about you. But I watched Biden first give an interview yesterday to Andrea Mitchell on MSNBC and then to Anderson Cooper on CNN. He seemed to be okay with Andrea Mitchell. But I have to say that some of these concerns about Biden's forcefulness, about his uh, how he's uh, uh, putting together the things he believes in. On that Anderson Cooper interview, if you watch it closely, there were moments when you sort of felt like, Get you got to we got to see you as the strong person you were in that acceptance speech. And I wonder, as we go towards the debates, just how we'll be watching Joe Biden. He isn't senile. He isn't weak. None of that is true. This is a kind of Joe Biden who he's been since I first covered him in 1987. Nevertheless, there are times when he kind of gets off track. He's not as forceful as you'd like him to be. What, what, am I? Am I wrong? No, no, I, I, no. Joe Biden is not naturally confrontational. Uh, I, I mean, that's. I, I think that's pretty clear, uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but it does worry many Democrats, uh, and including apparently Nancy Pelosi, who you know, who who kind of expressed the wish that there 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 might not be a, uh, three presidential debates in our future. Uh, yeah. And and look. Uh, I think we we we've seen what a disruptor Trump can be uh, on on the debate stage. We saw him with Hillary Clinton. Uh, we saw him stalk her, uh, basically uh, trying to try to uh, insert himself into her background. Uh, and and I think uh, people pretty much feel that uh, that that Trump is kind of a make your own rules guy on live TV, and and Joe Biden might not be able to adapt quickly enough. I think I think it's a true worry. And, and let me. Let, let me get everybody in on that real quick. Adam, go ahead, and then we'll go to Patricia and Andra. Yeah, that's the thing with Biden is he seems so easily flustered, and a lot of times when he gets flustered, he then goes on the attack. So the whole empathetic side that we see of Joe Biden 
doesn't translate when he gets in a situation where he's not prepped and he's uncomfortable. So I, I, I know Democrats want this election to be about Donald Trump plugging into voters. You want to get rid of Donald Trump, vote for whoever's running against them, and that's Joe Biden. Republicans want this to be about Joe Biden. The question, are voters going to walk into that booth and think about, I just want to get rid of Donald Trump, or mm, is Joe Biden up to the job? You know, they want, they want the other guy's territory to be what the question is. You know, I think the entourages are important here. Um, and so Republicans are going to try to paint Joe Biden's entourage as the squad and Bernie Sanders and everything that would be considered radical. But what, what, what Biden is going to have to convey is that he's going to put people who are ethical and people who are technocratically competent behind, uh, uh, behind him. Meanwhile, the Trump administration has officials who can't stand up to him, who will break the law to show for him and who, um, you know, will then uh, be swayed even against their better judgment if we're looking at the things that have happened at the CDC. Thank you for uh, all of your observations uh, on, on the show today. Uh, we are, Jim Galloway, headed for what is going to be an extraordinary general election season. I mean, it it's, it's a done deal now. I mean, we now have two official nominees, uh, plus some libertarian candidates out there as well. And we'll talk about libertarians on the show in the weeks ahead. But uh, this is going to be like... Uh, one of the most extraordinary election seasons we've ever seen, I think. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, what, 66 days now? 66 days to go. Yeah. 66 days. Um, all right. We're going to talk more about elections and campaigning as the weeks approach. But as I said, next week, we're going to look at reforming police, defunding police, police violence against African-Americans on Monday. And on Tuesday, we're going to go back and visit the pandemic to see where things stand. Thank you all for being with us for two weeks of coverage of the political conventions and for all of the feedback you've given to our team. I appreciate it greatly. Sam Burmis Dawes, Amelia uh, Brock. Uh, Jesse Neiswanger, who wrote our theme music, Jake Troyer. I appreciate all of you. See you again on Monday. In the meantime, take care and stay healthy.